So good evening, and thank you again for joining me tonight. I like to say thank you because I know you don't have to be here, so appreciate you showing up tonight. And also want to offer a warm welcome to those of you who have recently arrived. And also just to acknowledge that many of you will be leaving tomorrow, and a few of you are staying on. So it's one of those times at the Forest Refuge where we are in a bit more of a transition than usual. And I don't know about for you, but there's a sense of a little bit being suspended in this moment between changes of different kinds. So the impermanence that Caroline was forwarding, bringing forward earlier this week. Now, of course, on one level, impermanence is always the case. But most of the time we try to create an illusion of stability and even permanence with all kinds of different strategies and various ways that we try to control our inner and outer lives to try to create some sense of steadiness and security in the face of constant change. But I'm getting ahead of myself a bit. You know, in acknowledging this transition... I'm inviting us to turn towards the truth of impermanence. And it's not so easy. But we, for support with that, we can cultivate a very powerful quality of heart and mind that's the subject of tonight's talk. And I think those of you who've been here all month, you can probably guess what that quality is. It's equanimity. And you can guess this because it's the last of the seven factors of awakening, which is the theme that I've been exploring through this whole month. So just before I go into it in a little bit more detail, a bit of context. Through this month, Caroline and I, we've been weaving together the different topics and practices from both of the two wings to awakening, the wisdom wing, the compassion wing. And in this context, the compassion wing is shorthand for all four of the Brahma, Vihara, heart qualities of kindness, compassion itself, appreciative joy, and equanimity. So the four Brahma, Vihara, they culminate in equanimity. And so too, do the seven awakening factors. Mindfulness, investigation, effort or energy, joy, tranquility, samadhi or absorption, and lastly, equanimity. So in many ways, equanimity is a kind of a hinge or a fulcrum between these two wings. It's a quality we can cultivate very directly as the last of the four Brahma-Vihara. And as an awakening factor, it supports our opening to wisdom, and it's also an expression of that wisdom and understanding. So equanimity is the culmination of all of the practices that we're doing here, and it's a quality that's very highly valued in the Buddha's teachings but almost completely undervalued in mainstream society. 
I don't know about for you, but for me, I'd never even heard the word equanimity until I first came into contact with the Dharma. Because equanimity, it's not really a word that's used that much in everyday life anymore. So, just as a basic definition to get us started, we can think of equanimity as balance. The balance of the heart-mind that's completely at ease. And when equanimity is fully developed, there's no wanting anything. And there's no not wanting anything. No clinging, no resisting no movement towards or away from anything at all. So it's the capacity to simply be with what is in a state of deep acceptance and peace. So it's a very powerful quality and it can help us to navigate transitions, life challenges of all kinds, the highs and lows, the ups and downs, successes and failures, or as they say in the Taoist tradition, the 10,000 sorrows and the 10,000 joys. So in relation to that, one way that I've been thinking of equanimity recently in the context of my own practice is as elasticity. So elasticity is that capacity to flex to stretch, and still return to shape. So in the U.S., I think you talk about people sometimes being bent out of shape. And in a way, that's the opposite of equanimity, when there's that stiffness or rigidity or brittleness. But equanimity is the elasticity that helps us to respond rather than react. And then instead of getting bent out of shape, it's almost like we become a shape shifter. We're able to respond fluidly to whatever is happening in a way that's appropriate to whatever situation we're faced with. So that's just a general overview of equanimity, more in the context of daily life. And in the context of meditation practice, as a quality that we can cultivate we can strengthen it to become an increasingly refined state with a lot of nuances, a lot of subtlety in how it manifests. So just to get a sense of that, I'd like to bring in a couple of definitions from the suttas, the discourses. So according to one of my teachers, Gil Fronstel, he says, the English word equanimity translates two separate Pali words used by the Buddha, upeka and tatramajatata. So it takes quite a bit of equanimity even to say that. It's a bit of a workout. Tatramajatata. I hope I'm saying it right. So upeka, the more common term, it means to look over. And it refers to the equanimity that arises from the power of observation the ability to see without being caught by what we see. And when well-developed, such power gives rise to a great sense of peace. So 
So the Pali word upeka, it has a lot to do with vision, with clear seeing, and it links directly to insight or vipassana, which as you may know, one literal translation of vipassana is seeing clearly, seeing separately. So when I think of this aspect of equanimity, I sometimes think of that experience you can have that I've had when hiking in the mountains. You know, if we're doing, we do a lot of uphill climbing, and then finally we might get above the tree line or get to a viewpoint where we can look out over the terrain below. And then I can suddenly see where I came from in a whole new context. There's a sense of openness and expansiveness because I'm not just stuck in my own limited, narrow viewpoint anymore. And for me, that change of perspective, sometimes I experience it as a moment of release and that feeling of freedom that comes from seeing the bigger picture. And maybe you've had similar experiences, maybe not in hiking, but certainly in the context of retreats like this one. One of the benefits of being secluded from the push and pull and the entanglements of everyday life is that we can get more space, we can get more perspective on what's happening. And that spacious perspective, it helps to lessen, even to release, some of those patterns of entanglement. So that's one way we might experience equanimity. The second word that's usually translated as equanimity, tatramajatata, it points to a slightly different quality, different aspect of it. So again, according to Gil Fransdell, he says, still more qualities of equanimity are revealed by the term tatramajatata, a long compound made of simple Pali words. Tatra, meaning there, sometimes refers to all these things. Maja means middle. And tata means to stand or to pose. So put together, the word becomes to stand in the middle of all this. To stand in the middle of all this. And he says, as a form of equanimity, this being in the middle refers to balance, to remaining centered in the middle of whatever is happening. And this form of balance comes from some inner strength or stability the strong presence of inner calm, well-being, confidence, vitality, integrity, can keep us upright, like ballast keeps a ship upright in strong winds. So when I heard of Gill's reference to ballast there, I thought of my own experience of uh, a long time ago, living on a small wooden sailing boat in Australia. And my job in repairing this boat was to sand down and repaint this enormous keel, which before the boat was in the water, seemed disproportionately huge relative to the size of the boat. But once we got the boat launched, I understood, ah, right, The keel is what allows the boat to steer through all the different conditions out at sea. 
to navigate the tides and the currents and the winds, the waves, at times storms. But the keel doesn't stop the boat from being responsive. Depending on conditions, sometimes it might sail very hard over. (laughs) But the balance weight of the keel is what keeps the boat from getting swamped or capsizing. So I sometimes think of equanimity as being like that weight underneath the boat's hull. Most of the time it's invisible, but it's what prevents us from getting overwhelmed, what prevents us from flipping out when conditions are challenging. Now just to acknowledge, even though we might intellectually understand the value of equanimity, for many people it's challenging to embody it more deeply. And again, this is partly because it's not a quality that's very valued in mainstream society. So I I often joke that you, you don't generally hear people saying things like, wow, when I got to the airport and found out that my flight was delayed three hours and then canceled, I had so much equanimity. And you don't hear people saying, well, I love listening to talkback radio because it really gives my equanimity a good workout. Not at all. In this society, drama is generally much more valued than equanimity. It's like we're addicted to the highs and lows of life. And again, because of the mind's negativity bias, we just don't pay that much attention to times when we may be balanced and at ease. Because those times, they're not threatening to our survival. So equanimity, it can challenge some pretty strong individual and societal conditioning. But we can actively cultivate it, train in it. And in fact, whether we recognized it or not, whether we name it to ourselves as equanimity or not, every one of us here has already been developing this quality pretty consistently. Because equanimity is also an aspect of mindfulness. So pretty much every definition of mindfulness that we can find has an implicit quality of equanimity built into it. So for example, Gil Fransdahl's definition, mindfulness is the cultivation of clear, stable, and non-judgmental awareness. Sharon Salzberg and Joseph Goldstein, they define mindfulness as being aware of what is going on as it actually arises and not being lost in our conclusions or judgments about it. It helps us see nakedly and directly this is what is happening right now. And then Bhikkhu Analio, I think Caroline shared his definition the other day, keep calmly knowing change which can be abbreviated to just four letters, KC, KC. Keep calmly knowing change. And the calm that Bhikkhu is pointing to here is, relates to equanimity. So just in case equanimity, maybe to some people, sounds like a remote quality, a distant goal far off in the future, Every moment of mindfulness 
is also strengthening this capacity of non-reactivity. So there's a reciprocal relationship between mindfulness and equanimity. Paying attention with a non-judgmental attitude strengthens equanimity. And equanimity makes it easier to pay attention with a non-judgmental attitude. So it's a win-win situation. And we can see similar relationships between all of the seven factors of awakening, a kind of a circularity and an interplay between them. So the sequence, as we know it, begins with mindfulness. And as I just mentioned, mindfulness has this quality of equanimity built into it. And then as we move through the sequence, there's a building of energy to begin with through the factors of investigation, of effort and joy. Then there's a calming of that energy into tranquility, samadhi and equanimity. And as that equanimity settles, becomes more refined, it feeds back into mindfulness. And that helps our awareness become even more steady and stable and subtle. And so then we can cycle through another sequence of the awakening factors on an even deeper and more refined level. So when all seven of these awakening factors come into balance with each other, that's when we experience the most profound equanimity and this immensely steady non-reactivity is what allows the mind to open to transformative insights. So we could say that equanimity is the launching pad from which new understandings can emerge. So there's a close relationship between equanimity and insight and wisdom. And in the context of Vipassana practice, that wisdom comes from insight into seeing and experiencing the three universal characteristics of anicca, dukkha, and anatta with more and more clarity. So earlier this week, uh, Caroline was highlighting these characteristics, the understanding that Everything we experience is impermanent, anicca. It's imperfect, unsatisfactory, dukkha. And it's impersonal, anatta, not happening to a permanent fixed identity that we can call myself. So seeing these three characteristics more deeply is both the result of equanimity and a powerful support for strengthening it. So again, there's a reciprocal relationship here. When we understand that everything is constantly changing, none of it can give us lasting satisfaction, and all of it is arising due to impersonal causes and conditions, we naturally let go of clinging and resisting, and we experience more ease and peace. The opposite is also true. The more we resist the truth of these three insights, understandings, the less equanimity we experience and the more we suffer. 
So the degree of equanimity that we're experiencing, it gives us very clear feedback about whether we're living in alignment with wisdom or not. And it's useful to train in recognizing resistance because it magnifies our suffering and prevents the developing of wisdom. So there's an abbreviation for this that I've appreciated that comes from the U.S. Dharma teacher Shinzen Young. Some of you know him. He's trained in both Vipassana and Zen traditions, and he's also very interested in maths and neuroscience. And he came up with a mathematical formula that expresses the relationship between suffering and resistance very succinctly. So his formula is S equals P times R. Suffering equals pain multiplied by resistance. S equals P times R. Anybody recognize that in your own experience? How resistance has that multiplier effect in creating suffering. So it's very simple and elegant. And to the extent that we're able to reduce resistance to that same extent, we suffer less. As we start to explore equanimity more directly, though, in the beginning, what we tend to notice most clearly is all the ways we do cling and do resist and the subsequent absence of equanimity. And it's still okay. This is useful information that we can learn from. So every time we can bring awareness to the absence of equanimity, We're training in what could be described as its far enemy. So as I think most of you know, in the context of the Brahma-Vihara qualities, each of those four has a far enemy and a near enemy. And so in relation to equanimity, the near enemy is indifference. I'll come back to that later. For now, just to say a little bit about the far enemy. So the far enemy is the direct opposite of the ease and peace of equanimity. In other words, all forms of reactivity. Any type of spinning out and mental reactions that are pretty much rooted in greed, hatred, delusion, and pretty much always crystallize into a sense of me and my and mine and who I am. So we can use the understanding of the three universal characteristics and to see how they support equanimity. And just tuning into the first one, anicca or impermanence, instability, unreliability, change on different scales, different time frames. And again, Caroline spoke about that earlier this week. So just a little bit now about how resistance to change can show up on retreat in relation to the inevitable ups and downs and highs and lows of our meditation practice. So one of the benefits of being on retreat for a bit longer may not feel like a benefit at the time, but afterwards we might get to see that we get to go through many cycles of these ups and downs. And although it's not pleasant or comfortable, 
eventually we start to realize that these cycles are happening almost independent of our efforts to control them. They're happening according to natural laws, natural rhythms, just the natural ebb and flow of changing conditions. So when we recognize this, the best thing we can do in relation to these shifts is to just make room, to make space for them, to allow the process to unfold with as little interference or reactivity as possible. And to the extent that we can do that, equanimity is also the protection against those insights being experienced as destabilizing. So last week I mentioned how sometimes when we first touch into some of these new understandings, we can feel like we're on shaky ground, or at times even completely without ground, groundless. And here, consciously turning towards equanimity can give us the strength and the stability to navigate this new terrain without getting lost or destabilized or overwhelmed. So we can develop equanimity as a support for staying steady with the truth of impermanence, life's constantly changing circumstances. Equanimity is also a powerful support for staying steady in the face of the truth of unsatisfactoriness, of dukkha. The fact that nothing in conditioned reality is capable of giving us lasting satisfaction. So this is basically the understanding contained in the Buddha's Four Noble Truths, which asks us to look at how we relate to dukkha, asks us to stop resisting it, to let go of our craving for sense pleasure as an antidote to dukkha and instead to develop the inner strength and stability so that we're not so dependent on external conditions for our happiness. Not so easy. Again, it's so deeply ingrained in most of us that we have to keep putting all of our energy into trying to control the world out there trying to manipulate our outer circumstances, sometimes even manipulate other people to make ourselves feel better, get ourselves more comfortable. But as we all know, in spite of our best efforts, we don't always get the results we wanted. Life is just not always under our control. So at times we experience disappointment, If we've been cultivating equanimity, though, we have more chance of experiencing the peace of heart and mind, whether things go our way or not. So because of this inner training, because of the establishment of equanimity, our happiness is not so dependent on outer circumstances. And we have the freedom to actually experience some degree of ease, even in painful circumstances. So there's a famous poem from the Zen tradition that beautifully expresses this balanced acceptance. It's called Shin Shin Ming, 
sometimes translated as trust in mind. And it's a long poem, so I'll just read the first few lines, which some of you may be familiar with. It says, The great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences. When love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Make the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. If you wish to see the truth, then hold no opinions for or against anything. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the dis-ease of the mind. To set up what you like against what you dislike is the dis-ease or disease of the mind. No, I don't know about for any of you, but for me, I feel like I need to be reminded of that truth about a hundred times a day. Because in so many ways, this understanding is totally counter, again, to our mainstream conditioning, which is all about being in control. So as we know, mainstream societal values, they put a lot of emphasis on individualism and materialism. So we're almost programmed to orient to the world in terms of doing rather than being. There's a lot of pressure to have, to get, to gain, to attain, to achieve, to succeed, to become someone special. So it's not surprising we would bring some of these same values to our meditation practice. And we see this on retreat. There's a very common tendency to get caught in striving, pushing for results, for attainment, for success. And if we look underneath that motivation, there's often the need to be someone, and to be someone who is in control. So it can be profoundly frustrating to our small sense of self to understand that equanimity actually comes from relinquishing control. It comes from attuning to how things actually are instead of how we want them to be. So this whole process is not so much about using our willpower to suppress our reactivity and try to convince ourselves that we're being equanimous. Instead, it's more about setting up the conditions that help equanimity to arise naturally. So again, in terms of the awakening factors, we can see it involves setting up the conditions for the previous factors to be there, to support the next. So we begin with mindfulness. And then this naturally flows into investigation. And from there to energy, to joy, to tranquility, to samadhi, and eventually ripening into that balanced steadiness of equanimity. Some of you have tasted this very positive, wholesome chain reaction quite a few times. And so you know it's a completely impersonal process. And so now we can start to experience how equanimity also supports opening to the truth of anatta, or not-self. 
the understanding that there is no fixed, unchanging entity or identity in here who's at the center of this whole process. And if we look carefully, we see that this tendency to take everything personally, to make it me and mine and who I am, underlies most of our reactivity and enhances the pain, distress, distress, dukkha. So earlier I mentioned Shinzen Young's mathematical formula for suffering that he defines as S equals P times R. Suffering is pain multiplied by resistance. There's another way we could express this formula, one that's been helpful in my own practice, because it highlights the role of identification in increasing dukkha. So I sometimes change the formula to S equals P times I. Suffering equals pain multiplied by identification, multiplied by taking things personally. So as an antidote to lessen this kind of suffering, we can consciously reorient to the truth of anatta, of not-self. However, because of the limitations of language in part, this one is the hardest of the three to understand. And I think it's partly because in English, when we hear this term not-self, it's very hard not to have it set up a duality an opposition between self and not-self. And then we can misunderstand the goal of practice as being somehow the self trying to get rid of itself so that it can stop all of that selfing and make itself a better not-self, which you might hear is a pretty futile project. It's a bit like a dog chasing its tail. and It tends to just tie us up into intellectual knots and confusion. So we want to keep in mind that the sense of self itself is not the problem. It's the clinging to it and trying to make it solid and permanent that creates the dukkha. So one way of approaching this, rather than seeing it in terms of a binary of self and not-self, it can be more helpful to think of it as a continuum or a spectrum. So if you think of a spectrum, at one end we might have the experience of a very strongly activated sense of self at one end, and at the other end of the spectrum, a much quieter, less activated, possibly even at times barely there, sense of self at the other. And then we can practice noticing at any point in time, where are we along that spectrum? And you can play with this right now. Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to raise your fingers. But you can just get a sense. How strong is your sense of self now? Possibly some people are getting tangled up in ideas, maybe feeling frustrated, maybe there's some judgment or self-judgment. Maybe there's a sense of, yep, that's me, the bad student, or whatever the story might be. And then you're more towards the strong sense of self. Others might be thinking, yeah, yeah, we've heard this before. I thought this place was for advanced meditators. When are we going to learn something different? 
if they gave out awards on retreat, I'd probably get the prize for best not self. So again, there's a different kind of identification there. But for other people, they might be just sitting back, listening to the flow of words, letting some ideas just flow through, trusting that whatever's useful will stick. And then for you, the sense of self might be quieter, more in the background. There's more a sense of contentment and openness and presence. So we can train in just noticing the difference where we are along that spectrum and the relative ease or lack of ease in relation to that. It becomes pretty clear that the further we are towards the strongly identified sense of self, the dukkha is more obvious. And likewise, as we start to get used to the other end of the spectrum, the relative ease and spaciousness and peace of that becomes obvious. And we naturally want to stay there. So using the wisdom of these three characteristics of anicca, dukkha, anatta, it can help to release reactivity. And as we get used to this and the far enemies of equanimity reduce, then we can start to look out for the so-called near enemies of reactivity, of equanimity. So these are indifference, apathy, disconnection. So one of the particular challenges of equanimity is that it's quite a subtle quality. And in daily life, it can be easy to overlook or even misunderstand. It can be a misperception that equanimity is supposed to be a kind of flat, blank, non-responsiveness. And sometimes in popular culture, you hear people talk, talking about someone being very zen. And usually by being very zen, they mean just kind of sitting there, not doing anything. But this is not true equanimity. It's more like denial. So the near enemy of equanimity is a little harder to recognize because at first glance it might seem like it's in the same terrain but it's just a bit off in some way. And perhaps particularly with this one it can seem like equanimity can offer us relief from feeling afflictive emotions. So sometimes, more towards the beginning of Dharma practice, people can use or misuse equanimity as a way of defending against feeling uncomfortable feelings. And we might try to convince ourselves that we're just being equanimous, but actually we're just in denial and not opening to the anger or despair, self-hatred, shame, and so on. So this was true, there was a phase of this in my own practice and it took me quite a while to recognize that I had this tendency and what helped me to distinguish between what I'm thinking of as fake equanimity and the more real quality of equanimity was the body and this is one reason we put so much emphasis on body literacy So we want to be able to tune in to the more refined and subtle sensations in the body. 
because these can give us clues about what's really going on. And for me, one of the key ways of recognizing the difference between real and fake equanimity is the energetic quality in the body. So with true equanimity, there's a subtle vibration, a warmth, and an, an alive energy that's missing when I'm more in the terrain of the near enemy. So eventually I recognized that when I was trying to pretend that I was being equanimous, I could recognize a sort of a flatness or numbness or hollowness. And eventually I realized that true equanimity is not that kind of disconnected, disengaged, shut down quality. It's actually a very refined form of responsiveness. One that sees clearly what's going on and that knows an appropriate response. So again, there's wisdom to it. Wisdom and compassion. Because as Caroline mentioned the other day, the spaciousness of equanimity, it makes more room for all of the other skillful qualities to arise, like compassion and kindness, appreciative joy and ease and peace and so on. So as our insight practice deepens and we're able to develop more of this stability of mind, it becomes easier from that baseline steadiness to see the constant and time subtle movements of the mind towards what we like, away from what we don't like. And we start to experience how exhausting that constant movement is, creating that dis-ease of the mind, as in the Zen poem. And so then, instead of being so caught up in the content of our experience, we naturally start to settle back and rest in the space that surrounds it. So we learn how to let the eyes settle back, let the ears settle back, let the mind settle back, and just rest in awareness. So metaphorically, we might think of this as a kind of a figure ground shift. So we're moving our attention away from the objects that are usually in the foreground of our consciousness towards instead the background awareness that is knowing those objects. And this is perhaps a little subtle, but we can play with this figure ground shift in different ways. So we could play with it in terms of the experience of seeing. So normally, when we pay attention to seeing, we notice the things, the objects in our field of vision. So if I were to ask you to open your eyes and to tell me what you were seeing now, I'm guessing you'd probably say mats, cushions, plants, Buddha figure, other people, right? But did, would any of you have noticed the space that's between all of those objects? So if you like, you might just open your eyes now and with a soft gaze, 
see if you can just let the field of vision tune into space rather than looking at the things in the space. So the objects are in the background and you're seeing if you can see the space around them, just for a moment. And as you do that, you might notice, you might let the eyes close again now if that's more comfortable. But notice what effect it had to tune into the space rather than the objects. Because sometimes when we do that, we can feel a sense of spaciousness from attuning to space. Maybe even a sense of ease or peace. And then we can make that same move in relation to the mind. So we can notice, usually in the mind, we play, we again, we pay most attention to the content of the mind, the thoughts, the emotions, and so on. But again, you can just take a moment to notice in your mind, maybe different thoughts coming through, emotions. But rather than getting involved in the content of the mind, just seeing if you can rest back and pay more attention to the awareness that simply knows and receives those experiences. And again, this is not easy, but we might play with it from time to time. So we're training in this, um, what we can think of as unentangled knowing. This is another way, perhaps, of naming equanimity, and it comes from Upasaka Ki Nanayon. So Upasaka Ki Nanayon was a highly revered Thai meditation teacher from the last century. And her book, Unentangled Knowing, is in the library. And from what I remember of it, it's pretty much an extended exploration of equanimity. So if this is a theme that's of interest, you might take a look at the book. So just playing with this figure ground reversal, shifting the balance of our attention, it can help invite the mind at times into the calm, the quiet of equanimity. Even so, for many of us, even experienced meditators, this can take a bit of getting used to. So sometimes people come into meetings with me and say, well, nothing's happening in my practice now, nothing's going on, so now what? What am I supposed to do? And usually this is because someone's dropping into more refined states of mind that they're just not used to recognizing, to naming. So when we inquire together, what do you mean by nothing is happening? You might ask, well, in that nothing, is there any trace of calm? Usually there is. Is there any sense of tranquility, of steadiness, of spaciousness, of ease, and yes, of equanimity? 
And usually when we look at that state of nothing more carefully, we find that there's all kinds of skillful qualities in there. So this stage of the practice, it requires a deeper listening, deeper tuning in to the mind's micro-movements and to learn to recognize the stilling of those micro-movements into the deep peace of equanimity. So this is where all of our Dharma practice is heading. And because tonight's my last talk, and many of you are leaving tomorrow, and I'm leaving on Saturday, I just wanted to close by acknowledging how inspired I've been to be exploring this path with every one of you here. So I chose this theme of the awakening factors, not really knowing how it might land. But I've so appreciated all of your diligent efforts that you've been making here. Appreciated all the discoveries, the transformations that so many of you have shared with me in the practice meetings. So I just wanted to thank you for sharing your practice with me over this last month. And to close, just to highlight that connection between equanimity and freedom one more time. So there's a famous passage that it occurs quite a few times in the Pali Canon. And Caroline referred to it a few times uh, earlier in the week in her morning reflections. I think it's worth hearing again. So it's attributed to the Buddha in a teaching he gave to Ananda in the Greater Discourse to Malunkya Putta. And it's based on a translation by Bhikkhu Analyo. It says, this is peaceful, this is sublime, namely, the stilling of all formations, the letting go of all attachments, the destruction of craving, fading away, dispassion, cessation, Nibbana. So thank you for your attention. Let's just take a moment of silence before we chant the sharing of blessings.
goodness that arises from my practice. May my spiritual teachers and guides of great prestige, my mother, my father, and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the highest gods and evil forces Celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing. May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold, nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble guide. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, may darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.